Dinking is such an important aspect of the pickleball game, especially if you want to move up in terms of your level. I've talked about dinking a number of times on the podcast in terms of the technique, but today I think this is a great show because Tony Upkeys, a level two certified pickleball instructor, is going to talk about the strategy of dinking. So let's get to the intro to hear from Tony. Welcome to the Pickleball Fire Podcast, where it's all about pickleball. Today, I'd like to welcome to the Pickleball Fire Podcast, Tony Upkeys. How are you doing today, Tony? I'm doing great. I am so glad that you are able to join me today on the podcast. And I know you've got a background, certainly as an instructor, racquetball player, which of course I can relate to. So uh, let's just get started here with first, how and did you find out about pickleball and when did you start? Well, it's been about six or seven years ago. I'm from Sioux Falls, South Dakota, or have been for the last 20 years and before that, Minnesota. And my wife was getting tired of all the cold up there. So we were looking for a place down here in Fort Myers. And she started renting down here in the winters, probably six, seven years ago. And I was down here one weekend, and we were out for dinner with friends of hers. And Tom, the gentleman we were with, was mentioning, I'm playing pickleball tomorrow morning. I'm going, what is that? I mean, I hadn't, it wasn't up in the north yet. And he said, well, come on over and we'll try and get you in. Well, Tom really didn't realize I was pretty good with rackets. So I went over there and for the first hour I sat there and watched and he said, these are pretty good players. I don't think you're going to, you should try and get in with these. Maybe tomorrow we can come over and I can hit around with you. Well, the next day I came over and started hitting around and he found out I could hit a ball pretty well. And it was fun. I got started playing down here every time I came down. And I think I just got hooked on it. And so did you end up moving down to Florida shortly thereafter? Yeah, we bought a place here in uh, Pelican Preserve. It's a gated community, 55 and over. Uh, There's 2,500 doors here. And right now we have six pickleball courts and over 600 people playing here. Wow, that's incredible. And you only have six courts? Well, we're supposed to get six more. They'll probably be ready next day. So I would imagine at this time of the year, it's probably pretty darn busy in the morning. Not right now. We we're a snowbird community. So of the 2,500 doors, there's probably only 30%, maybe 40% here. So the courts are, they're busy, but not completely booked. Once we get into December, January, you cannot get a court from sunrise until sunset. Everything is booked solid. Amazing. So you're you're talking about, do you have a situation down there where people are like reserving a court for a set period of time, as opposed to being like more drop-in type play? Right. It's all, it's all reserved. At seven o'clock in the morning, you can reserve for three days ahead. By 7.01, every court is reserved. Wow. That is absolutely crazy. And, you know, that's really interesting because I didn't find out about pickleball till 2018 when I moved to Connecticut And, you know, so that was just over three years ago, but that's interesting because I really, I don't know anything about pickleball before I came here to this area, but it sounds like it probably wasn't in, 
in the north that much, but now here we've got, you know, lots of dedicated courts, indoor, outdoor, and, uh, you know, to your knowledge, I mean, how, how has it grown up, up north? Any idea how it's grown in South Dakota and Minnesota since you've been gone? Well, I get back up to Minnesota. I've got two kids living up in Minneapolis. And the park and rec department in Minneapolis is has gotten behind it. Almost every park now is getting pickleball courts. And then they've just opened an indoor facility called, I think it's Lucky Lucky Shots. And they've got 12 indoor courts. And we'll see if it goes. I think it will. They're planning on some big tournaments this winter. Well, that's awesome. It's uh, growing everywhere. And I know when I left Dallas three years ago, Dallas, Texas area, there was n- nobody had even heard of pickleball. And, and now it's really starting to grow there, and certainly, especially in Austin. But, you know, you were talking a little bit about kind of your first time experience out there playing. Talk a little bit about your racket sports background. Well, I started in Minnesota in the 70s. And it was the hotbed of racquetball. We had the top pros there, and I lived in St. Cloud. I was 50 minutes away from Minneapolis. And I started, you know, I was playing every day. I got a chance to play with some of the top people in the in the world. And I just got better over a, you know, about a three-year period. And then I got a job as the pro in Lincoln, Nebraska at sports courts. They were a chain of three clubs. Each club had 12 courts, and we had two pros. I went between Bellevue, Nebraska, and Lincoln, Nebraska, teaching lessons and playing tournaments. So my days for about three years were all racquetball, just hitting, 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 playing, and teaching. And from there, I got a chance. I moved up to Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and opened up a racquetball club there managed that and I was the pro there and at that time I was you know playing all the amateur age divisions I was getting a little old for playing with the kids I was in my 40s and it's amazing the difference between a 40 year old and a 20 year old but I was starting to win most of my uh, age brackets and from there I just kept on playing age brackets and until I picked up pickleball a few years ago and you had mentioned to me earlier, too, that you ended up teaching somebody who ended up being one of the top women's professional players in the world in terms of racquetball. And is now, you know, when she's healthy, I know Laura is uh, definitely a, a top player in pickleball, too. Yes, Laura, I met her when she was 15. I started giving her pickleball lessons in Lincoln, Nebraska, and she got very good, very fast. And about 10 years later, we teamed up and we won the 25 and under national doubles. And we played in a few other tournaments together. We always had to play in the men's open when we played. Because for her, the local tournaments, there just wasn't any competition. She was that good. And then she was number, I think, seven is the best she got in the world. Right. And just so the audience knows, that's Laura Fenton Covanda. I think I got that last name right. Yes. All right. So actually, one of the things, too, that you mentioned that I thought was interesting and and kind of looking for a point of comparison here is that, you know, in in racquetball, there is a big difference between a 40-year-old and a 20-year-old. Do you think there's that much difference in pickleball? I, I really don't. I mean, I'm 70 years old, and down here in Florida, 
I can play at the four or five level in the 19 plus and be competitive. If it's a big draw, the only thing that hurts is I, I can't play five or six matches in a day and still be fresh where the kids can. But for the first two or three rounds, I scare the crap out of them. You know, yeah, it's a matter of skill. It's not a matter of being the quickest person on the court. So can you go ahead and, you know, define what you mean there by skill? I mean, I think what you're saying is that it's really about consistency and technique as opposed to just athleticism. It is. I mean, like I've, I've been working with some ladies and we work really hard on dinking with a purpose. And these are three, five, four old ladies and we get them off, get on the court with men and they're supposedly much stronger and faster just because of the, the way the makeup. But if they get into a slow game with them, they can move them around the court and create holes and just, they don't have to hit it hard to put it through. It's a matter of strategy. It's a matter of learning how to hit a ball to the outside, to his backhand, then coming back with one to his forehand, make him move around a little bit and switch from backhand to forehand. Pretty soon they cough one up. Going cross court enough, and then every once in a while going the other way, pretty soon one of them gets lazy and leaves a hole in the middle. Just learning how to read those things and set them up. That's the big difference. And so, you know, if we delve a little bit more into the dinking, it is kind of the expectation, you know, initially when you start that dink battle that you're going to be going cross court, you know, the first time that you're hitting the ball, it's kind of a cross court battle. Yes. You've got going cross court, you've got 20 feet to work with so that you can hit a little bit, a little bit firmer dink with an angle that stays closer to the net. If you go straight ahead, you've only got seven feet to work with. That's not much. And the net is two inches higher. So you've got to hit a little higher dink. And it's a little more difficult to be consistent with that. And when you start doing that, and that's what everybody practices to warm up, it's just straightforward. And you kind of get used to that. If you, It's something we really teach down here is the cross-court dink. And then you were also talking about the placement of the dink. And I've heard kind of different theories on this. And I think you're kind of, it sounds like the goal when you teach is that you, you do want the dink to be consistent, but you also want it to land closer to the net rather than deeper in the service or deeper in the um, kitchen. Well, the cross court dink will allow you to keep it closer to the net, but you, as it's going through the middle, so somebody can't reach in and tap it through the middle on you, but you really want to be going at somebody's feet. So the angle stays close to the net and gets out, gets wide. And then it should be somewhere close to that no volley zone line. That makes your opponent have to choose whether they're going to let it bounce or if they're going to take it in the air. And if there's indecision in there, then you've made a mistake again. And then when you're in that dink battle, when do you know that you should, you know, you've got them out wide, say, is that, Next, the next shot is going to be to the same person cross court, but to their forehand. Is that the best strategy? Well, you to their forehand, to their right at the middle of their body, just not the same shot two and three times in a row. If you hit me the same shot twice and then here it comes again a third time, I'm not going to miss it. 
I've just practiced it twice. But if I have to change from a backhand to a forehand, that's different. Or something that's right in front of me that jams me up a little bit, it's a different stroke. I haven't practiced that. I just, you know, I was just hitting two backhands. Now I got to go over a forehand. I got to move. I got to do something different. You don't get to groove it. And then how do you decide when you're going to not necessarily attack the ball, but maybe rather than going cross court, going at the person who's straight in front of you? I try and and do that anytime they send me really wide and I feel a little bit uncomfortable. Then I'm just going to hit a nice little soft one, the easiest shot right in front of me, drop it over the net to get myself out of trouble. And that'll bring the other person to his side of the court. And then they've got to decide what to do with it. Most of the time, they'll now they'll go cross court to my partner. So now I've gotten out of trouble and I haven't popped anything up for them. But when you get into trouble where you're really reaching and stretching for stuff, you tend to pop the ball up or you tend to hit it too hard. So I think that's about the only time that I'll go straight forward. Unless I know somebody is really weak at thinking, then we'll go after them. Right. Yeah. And that, that makes sense. It's yeah, I kind of I was playing this morning and was um, in a in a dink battle with one of the guys and and, uh, you know, I, I can be fairly consistent. I don't actually think I'm that great of a dinker. But my partner says, Chris, you're just not going to win a dink battle with Lynn. And I'm like, well, yeah, I don't know. Sometime you can. But yeah, so I mean, what's what's the best way to, you know, practice that? Because I like you said, when you warm up, it's usually you're just dinking straight across. And I don't really, you know, a lot of people just don't dink during the game. So I sometimes wonder why they, you know, dink to warm up. But what's the best way to practice dinking to, you know, learn how to put pressure on your opponent like we were talking about? Well, we will we will drill for between half an hour and hour just dinking and just cross-court dinking and working inside, outside, inside, outside, inside, outside, till it becomes almost a no-brainer doing it. You don't even think about it. And we'll hit back, we'll do backhands, and we'll do forehands. And then we'll play little games with four of us where, you know, you have to hit three dinks that are in the, in the kitchen. And then after that, everything's game. So now we're really trying to put pressure on each other and see who can make the other person pop one up. So we're using what we've been practicing. You know, and that could be our whole hour and a half session, just doing that. We spend so much time up at the net because that's where the game is won. Very true. And, you know, I think that's great advice. I mean, because even if, you know, people don't necessarily spend 60 to 90 minutes in, in dinking practice, even a half hour can really benefit your game. Well, and if you think about it, you know, the only time you're hitting a ball from deep is on your serve or your serve return. That's two, maybe two swings every in a point. And then you're going to go up to the net and you're going to, what, hit 10 or 12 dinks between your group. So let's just say it's two and five. You know, that's, you want to, I mean, the five are the ones you want to be good at. And anybody can hit a forehand back over the net from back. So I think it's just worth it to spend the most time on dinking. Well, that's a good point. And I think a lot of people don't even think about it that way, but that's so true. I mean, it's pretty much just the serve and serve return, 
you know, in, in the third shot, which is from deep in the court and, you know, everything else. Yeah. Move up to that kitchen line. And if you're, you know, playing at a decent level, it's, it's going to be a dink game. Now that's, that's really what we work on the most is starting at the three, five and the four old players, the people below that, we just make sure they're having fun and you know, they're going to be kind of like playing tennis, just hitting the ball, trying to get it over the net. And there really isn't a lot of, of strategy before that, but we really stress just having fun and being able to get the ball over the net when you're the two and two fives. Now, I know that you had a really nice tournament win with NBA Hall of Famer Rick Barry, who's who's 77. Talk a little bit about your experience at that tournament and how you guys did. Well, I don't, I don't think I played the best I've ever played. Rick plays very well. And with his size and reach, it really makes my life easy. I mean, all I've got to do is return serve deep. And he basically will pick off anything that isn't hit wide to me. He's got great hands at the net he's, and he's very intense. So, I mean, there's no falling asleep and taking points off. You, you have to play when you're playing with him. And I think we mesh pretty well. I think in the future, if we do play, we're going to do, you're going to see us winning a lot. Well, good. Hopefully you, you get that chance and we all want to see certainly many tournaments for the rest of 2021 and into 2022, you know, barring any more big lockdowns here in the U.S. So one of the things, you know, as you, as I was thinking about kind of the conversation we've been having about, you know, dinking and putting pressure on your opponent, you know, is there anything special that you kind of move people towards in terms of choosing a, choosing a paddle? You know, because like you said, the, the game is pretty much, you know, one at the net and that's usually with soft shots at the higher level. Is there a particular paddle or type of paddle that you would recommend to players to help them with that part of the game? Well, I have to, I'm a little biased because I am sponsored by Temper Sports. I use their Oculus LX. It's a round paddle and it's got a very, very soft feel to it. Coming from racquetball, I, I hit everything hard. So I'm used to swinging hard, and this gives me more touch. I don't need what you would call a hard paddle to get the ball to scream off my paddle. The round paddle seems to have a really, really big sweet spot. So when I do get into the firefight, I I don't have an issue with miss hits. Everything seems to go back if I can get my paddle on it. So I, I really do like that paddle. Now, I'm actually not familiar with that company and that paddle. Can you spell the name of the company? It's just TMPR. The owner of the company is Doug Clark. His background is he was the marketing director for Paddletech and he split off and they're in Michigan and they make the paddles right there. I think it's Niles, Michigan. So he's, he's really familiar with the technology. He's done a really nice job with his paddles. Well, perfect. And in terms of that company, how, how long ago was it started and how long have you been uh, sponsored and using that equipment? Oh, I think it's been three years, four years. I just, you know, when they first started, I got a, I saw them advertising on, on Facebook and I just sent them an email to look, ask them if they were looking for players. And 
we talked over the phone and he knew Laura Fenton really well. So again, her name came up and I think that was part of him going, oh yeah, well then we'll, we'll definitely sponsor you. And we went from there. All right. Well, cool. Yeah. That's good to know about the paddle. And I, I guess one of the things I'm curious about just within that last couple of statements was that, you know, coming from racquetball, you were used to hitting the ball hard, which I could definitely relate to, you know, what did it take for you to really hone in on, on the soft game of pickleball? Because that is something that kind of first trips up people from tennis and racquetball. Well, it took me about a, a year or a year and a half to finally figure out that everything I hit hard from the back came back and it came back hard or it came back somewhere else where I had to work to get it. And then I started watching, paying attention to the pros and everybody. And all of a sudden I'm seeing these people hitting this little floater shot that drops over the net and nobody can do anything offensive with it. I'm going, Hmm, maybe I should learn that. So I spent a lot of time just hitting soft shots and then working on the dinking. And once you realize that people can't attack something that's down around their ankles and you get that you know, ingrained in your mind, then you can really build on that and learn how to put the ball there. Right. So I think the moral of that story is to definitely keep it low, which is something we are used to doing in, in racquetball, but not just the hard shots, but the soft shots too. Yeah, the soft, the the hard shots still have to go over to the net, over the net, and they do not come down quick enough. So you've got to hit the soft ones from the backcourt. It's just, you know, I know the kids now are starting to start to really drive the ball for a third shot, but these are the top level kids that can hit the ball so much harder than your average player that you can actually sometimes beat the reflexes of somebody with that. I mean, I hit the ball hard, but I still can't beat the reflexes of a decent player. Good point. Good point. All right. Well, great, Tony. I know that you teach out in the Fort Myers area. If somebody's interested in uh, reaching out to you for some lessons or a a clinic or just anything maybe about the paddle or what have you, where's the best place for them to contact you? Well, you should have my, my name spelled on there. I have an email, which is aupkeys12 at gmail.com. And those, I guess, are the easiest ways to get a hold of me. All right. And just so the audience knows, upkeys is U-P-K-E-S. So if they do want to uh, reach out or find you on Facebook or send an email, that will make it a little bit easier for them. And then besides playing at Pelican Preserve, where I live, I also play over at Brooks Park. It's by Page Field in Fort Myers. They have 12 beautiful courts. They've just redone the parking facility and the whole park around there. It's going to be beautiful. Well, great. I hope some people are able to come out and see the park. It sounds just great. But yeah, Tony, really appreciate your time today. That was a lot of fun talking about dinking and putting on your pressure on your opponent using that strategy. I've talked a lot on the podcast kind of about technique, but that was really more about the strategy behind it. So I really appreciate your time today, Tony. That was great. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Pickleball Fire podcast. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to give it a five-star review on Apple iTunes. 